Welcome to another Ulster Rugby Roundup. It's another special occasion. We have our second special guest of the season, and it's Premier Sports commentator Mark Robb. Hello, Mark. What a bikey. <laughs> Very normal, Mark. So enjoy that. That is a proper start to the podcast. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Better intro than normal already. As always, I'm Gareth Hanna, and with me are Jonathan Bradley. Hello, how's it going? And Adam McKendrick. Hey, guys. It's another defeat to discuss this week. At least this one didn't spoil any upcoming publications, though. It's one bright spot. I had originally written at least this one won't go down the history books, and then I was like, oh no, wait, no, it, it, it will. Um, well, there was actually, if you wanted to draw the parallel, Ulster did actually lose to Connacht twice in a row um, in the summer of '98. And I think that was the first time in 44 or 45 years that that had happened. You put me on the spot, I don't have the exact stat. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they've lost the Connacht twice in a row now as well. Because yeah. mm-hmm. they've got hammered and Galway. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic, there we go. Yeah, I can always shoehorn this book into anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to look back at that, obviously, and we'll look ahead to the European campaign this week. When Leicester come to town, we'll discuss uh, a little bit about yourself, Mark. Brought you here to talk about yourself. And then uh, our listener questions and a little bit about the club scene. First of all, then, Ulster 15, Connacht 22. First of all, probably the biggest talking point, that Matty Ray red card. There's obviously been a lot of discussion about that. Mark, you were on commentary. What did you What did you make of it? Yeah, I was on commentary. I usually refer to the higher authorities to my right, as I always sit on the left, and commentary, Trimble and Ferris. And uh, it was interesting that Ferris straight away referred back to the Jared Payne incident. He saw some similarities in that. And in that one after the game, Mark McCall, I was commentating on that match, he asked me what I thought, and I said, well, if it was an orange card, I think it was an orange for Jared Payne on that occasion. Maybe that was wishful thinking as an Ulsterman in a quarter-final of a Heineken Cup, and that season we might have won it if we'd got past Saracens. But uh, that was my instinct. I thought, well, if there was an orange, that's an orange, because he didn't Mm -hmm. fall on his neck or head. He fell on the back of his shoulder. And I understand Andrew Brace saying, yeah, dangerous play, it's a red card. And the way it's being refereed at the moment with the directives and the laws as they're uh, attempted to be applied, I don't think you can argue with Andrew Brace's decision. And certainly Stephen Ferris and Andrew Trimble beside me both thought that red was a fair enough call, Mm -hmm. as did Dan McFarland after the match. Um, But if you can give an orange... It's an orange, and I think some referees may have tended towards a yellow card. I don't think I don't think every referee in the Pro 14 would have automatically gone for red. Mm. Any sort of buddy on social media that has been that I've seen questioning it is maybe questioning more the actual law rather than the decision. So if you look at the law, law nine point one seven, this is the best research I've ever been. Uh, a player must not tackle, charge, pull, push, or grasp an opponent whose feet are off the ground. So. It's pretty conclusive, really, when you look at it. But the, does the law then need looked at? Because people on social media then are saying, what what could Manny Ray have done? He could have jumped. Yeah. Um, and I think that would have saved him, because we've heard an awful lot of this phrase, rugby collision, in uh, recent times. You can go back to... Actually, again, Mark, you did the Australia-Ireland game in the summer when... Again, we had this debate around collisions in the air and people have really honed in again on this because of the way the laws have changed over the last couple of years where it's in a position now where if that happens, you land on your back, you land on your head, um, it's going to be a card. And But if Matty Ray had just jumped, then it probably would have been deemed a rugby collision. But the only th- the thing was, I don't think Matty Ray 
saw the guy coming like mm-hmm. he had eyes for the ball he's I hate the phrase but he's not that sort you know there was never <laughs> any malicious mm. intent and does that, that does that not come into it then well that's the problem that the, the, the intent is not in law the, the, yeah. the referee may base their decisions on the outcome the outcome mm-hmm. it looks pretty horrific but I totally agree with what Jonathan's saying there, and, and Stephen Ferris and Trimble again both said it in commentary. If Mally Ray had got off the ground and competed in the air with his opponent, then it probably would have been deemed as a rugby collision, and mm-hmm. it's, it's play on. It might not even have been a, a penalty. Mm-hmm. Anytime you don't jump, you open yourself up to the possibility that this is going to happen. For me, one of the things you have to do as well is you have to anticipate what the opposition are going to do. Mm-hmm. You've got to anticipate that someone mm-hmm. is going to be jumping to compete for that restart. There are 15 other players opposite you. They're not all going to be competing on the ground. Someone's going to try and get up and compete that, and you've got to try and anticipate that. And I know the law doesn't allow for that either, but that's something that a player's got to do whenever they're looking at a ball coming down from a great height like it is from a restart. And Tommy Bow said that on air sport, that that is the way they are trained to compete in the air. Mm-hmm. Mm. But I did see it on social media, people question, should the law be changed? So do you think, no, sort of happy the way it is? I don't think you can change the law because there is the problem that intent isn't taken into consideration, but then there's so much emphasis and there has to be so much emphasis in this game about player safety so it's one of those things where whether you intend to do it or not if you endanger somebody it's going to be a card but I mean, we complained for years and years that Ulster weren't competitive at restarts and then they start to compete for them and look what's happened <laughs> careful what you wish for it looked horrendous every time you watched it back it just looked worse whenever you smacked into the ground it's like, oh, not quite as bad as Stuart Oldings one again for Brief yeah. Anguiem at the weekend poor old Stuart getting a red card having Set up an amazing try earlier in the game. <laughs> the look on Olding's face after the tackle as he went to plead his case to the referee, like, do you know what he needed about that tackle? It was like, yeah. there's nothing I can say here. <laughs> he was apologising before he'd even been yeah, given his yeah. marching orders. He was apologising before the guy hit the ground. <laughs> he was. Um, Randy Brace saying the, the referee did sort of come in for a lot of discussion around his... Uh, I don't know what would you say performance I don't know uh, on social media then again one of our questions that we had in from David O'Neill asks what are your thoughts on uh, Friday's ref under Brace warning Rory on sanctions beyond penalties a yellow card uh, for repeat infringements regarding the two ruled out in front of kicker tries I thought I was, this, I was very wordy I thought this one was bizarre it's so rare to see a team warned for offensive infringements and I know Ulster's discipline hadn't been exactly great up until this point but to warn them for something that they're doing whenever they have the ball to give them a yellow card for is completely bizarre because you're not doing it deliberately to try and gain gain an advantage I think the two offsides were simply the two players thought they were okay and kept going it wasn't like I very much doubt that both Nelson and Stockdale thought they were uh, well in front and thought, oh, I'm going to see if I can get away with this. I think they both thought they were fine. For me, I think it's just a ref getting a little bit frustrated with uh, two repeated infringements. I I think Brace maybe just got a li- little bit into the moment a bit too much. I-, I thought in terms of the whole game, he was actually okay. But for that, I think he he just got a little bit Par hungry at that point. What, was that something that was discussed on at the time? Well, certainly at half time uh, over our cup of coffee, Andrew Trimble said he'd never heard a referee say that before. Um, I, 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 
I'm trying to go with Adam on this one that um, if you're if you're attacking in that way and you overrun the ball, it's not cheating in inverted commas or a, or a professional foul in any way. So I, I don't see how the referee can can uh, justify giving a yellow card for being offside in front of the kicker for, for you know if, even yeah. if it's th- third or fourth time. Um, if that's his interpretation of a law, I'd, I'd like to see that that law in black and white. I think he's he's overinterpreted, um, you know, repetitive infringements as you say, and and uh, maybe got caught up in the moment on the field. Mm, but it, it was it's, it's, it sounded nonsensical. Whenever he said it, I went what. <laughs> I would have absolutely loved to see Roy Best. If somebody had a good bin for that, it would have been unbelievable. I think as, uh, yeah, as Andy Trimble alluded to in the commentary, I don't think it was uh, too much love lost between Rory mm-hmm. and uh, the referee. I mean, you're talking about a game where there was 31 penalties between the two sides. So I don't think there are going to be too many complaints about the big calls, certainly in terms of the disallowed tries um, to the latter of the law. Um, again, another phrase that we shouldn't use, but anyway, um, with the red card, the only one that was, I think, more debatable was Conan's first try, where there was a wee bit of um, uh, blocking. Certainly, Steve McCluskey thought he was blocked off, but um, sort of chatting, chatting before we turned the mic on there, that I think um, Ulster probably got away with something similar in a in a previous game. So it's one of those. Um, Maybe they do even out over the course of the season. So and I think players are getting very, very adept at shepherding players away off the ball. So it doesn't mm. look like a, <laughs> a purposeful block. Yeah. Yeah. Just before we leave the disciplinary issue, um, Jonathan Bradley's stat, blatantly stolen from the five talking points this week. Ulster had seven disciplinary points last year. So what is it? Three for a red? Three for the red. And one yeah. for yellows. Um Ulster have seven already this year, so a fair bet that they're going to beat last year's total. Um, the, the Weekly Donal then this week asked, is there a, dif- a discipline problem at Ulster Rugby given all the cards we've had so far, or is it just a case of individual carelessness? Is this a, an issue with this season's Ulster, or is it just that it's been... Yeah, just what he said. I don't need to re-ask his question. <laughs> well, things like... Um, you know, I saw... The red card, we talked about that. The yellow card was for a high tackle from Marcel Katia, and you have to have a little bit of sympathy for him in that we see those type of collisions an awful lot where a smaller player is coming across and the tackler is coming the other way and they almost cross. And you do see that high contact, but it has to also be remembered it was the second one of the game, mm-hmm. which will be why I got the yellow card. Some of the things in terms of clear outs that we've seen have brought yellow cards and look Ulster will probably say that it's not a big issue in the sense that it's something that they expect to last they'll probably say that it's something of a freak that the cards this year have all been bunched together but you only have to look at the numbers of how many more points are conceding with 14 and it's pretty obvious you'd rather play with 15 than 14 so if yeah. you're consistently getting cards then there's no way to argue that it's not a problem mm. yeah. I mean they only conceded 8 points when they were down to 14 and they conceded 14 when they were with 15 but if you had read the 5 things stats <laughs> article then you would have seen the overall picture with all the points and they're, uh, you can't remember them right now can you I thought if I I, have, I have it loaded up right here 
ready to go somewhere here. Talk amongst yourselves, folks. Well, while, while you get that, look look at the yellow cards that Ulster have had this year. One was for Katsia at the weekend for the high tackle. One was for Rob Herring against the Kings for sacking them all. One was um, against Al O'Connor for sacking Malls against the Cheetahs. You know, these are infringements that are close to the line. These are infringements that are cynical, that are preventing tries, that are preventing Ulster from conceding points. One prevented us scoring a try or Ulster because O'Connor yeah, dropping the shoulder before That's right. John Cooney against the Kings. Yes. So, you look at these cynical offences. The thing for me is Ulster aren't getting these penalties for accumulations of offences. They're getting yellow cards for one-off incidents. <clears throat> now, you can say Marcel could see a, that was the second of the game, and, and it was, which probably contributed to it. I think it deserved a yellow card anyway simply because of the speed that it happened at. That, for me, is a concern, because Ulster, they're not repeatedly giving up penalties, and that leads to yellow cards. They're giving up yellow cards in one-off incidents, mm. and that, in turn, leads to a lot of problems, because it means you can go from a position where you have parity in a game, and all of a sudden you're on the back foot, as opposed to you're under a lot of pressure, and then you lose a man, and you're under even more pressure. Mm-hmm. Do, do, will I just steal your stat again? Okay, I'll read it. I'll read it. It makes me that, seem like that's, a, a that's new why thing. I do these research things <laughs> so that <laughs> everyone else can use the stats. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ulster have played 80 minutes this season with 14 men on the field, and they have shipped 34 points in that time and scored only 16. So, yeah, it's but yeah, obviously it's not going to do you any favors. Well, the thing <laughs> was, like Ulster could have got another yellow because it wouldn't <laughs> be surprised in any way if somebody had been pinned. Mm. Um, in the scrum I think the thing that saved Ulster was they seemed to rotate through who was giving away the penalties at the scrum so it wasn't a case <laughs> of um, Andrew Grace knowing who to give the card to equally Connacht gave away 16 penalties in the game and felt like an awful lot of them were after half time so they you know in terms of accumulation they could have got something as well but um, I mean, for, for, for me having commentated on most of the matches this season I was talking to Dan McFarland the captain's run Last week, it's it does appear as if each game is being refereed differently. Yeah. The, the, each referee is a different interpretation. Stuart Berry here in the Edinburgh <coughs> game was was perennially giving penalties for a tackle release, and he was really harsh in that. Like it was it was microseconds he was he was blowing for that particular penalty. Then the next game, the referee doesn't give a penalty for the same infringement, and that yeah. must be hugely frustrating for coaches and players. You know, Richard Cockrell complained loud and hard after the Edinburgh Connacht game and he accused Connacht of, of cheating which I think he again maybe put slightly in inverted commas but I think his frustration is it's that word again consistency and I sat down for coffee two weeks ago with the, the national referees manager Davy Wilkinson because I wanted to talk to him about what they were doing on that front and Greg Garner is trying to address it but it, it isn't happening. You know, that, that's I many, what, six games now? And to me, it's different every time because every referee seems to have his, his pet law that he wants yeah. drilled down and, and addressed at every opportunity. And that's massively frustrating. It must be for players and coaches. Mm. Yeah. It, see, this is an issue that I've never really heard discussed in rugby before. Obviously, it is in football all the time. But, and that's that, like, you see then players giving off, but in rugby that still doesn't happen like you still the players just still show it's been talked about so many times but the players just show so much respect to all referees it's just it's, it's good 
Um, if the the red card wasn't the issue then for Ulster, uh, on this occasion, judging by the the way the scores went, um, what what went wrong this week for? Well, I I, I use this word this uh, the, the, the actually Premier Sports launch plug for Channel um, about reality for Ulster this season, having lost so much experience and and, and such quality players like you know, Piatai, Trimble, Bull, which all been talked about. But it's the injury list. You know, there were the 14 injuries last week. Down in, in uh, Munster, losing Cooney and Henderson early on. There's been a lot of bad luck. I mean, Ulster have had to play a lot of academy players who wouldn't have seen a lot of game time. And then you get in, instances where you know, Michael Lowry comes on to play fullback against against Munster. Poor Angus Curtis, the smallest wing forward in the world, has to play in two positions in one game. And in one of them in which he started, he's never played 13 and as, well, apart from playing a couple of games for Queens, he's not a 13. So he's got the guys inside him. McCluskey's very quiet. So is Billy Burns. They're trying to protect um, Angus Curtis, who's switching between 12 and 13, depending on whether they're attacking or defending. I think Ulster have been put in a very invidious and difficult position due to the, the changeover in personnel, coaching staff from last season, build in what happened last season, the whole the atmosphere around the camp and the squad. And, and now this vast injury list. You know, if you, you you pick the strongest Ulster team, if, if you have Jordy Murphy, Kutsia, Sean Dysel playing at his best, Henderson second row, and, and maybe Alan O'Connor, who plays his nuts off in every game he plays for Ulster, it seems to me, fills that shirt. And then you've got your your, your first choice front row. You've Henry Spate, Craig Gilroy, Will Addison at fullback, Cave and Marshall in the midfield of McCluskey. It's mm-hmm. a totally different picture for me. Yeah, yeah. That's just the issue getting them all out there. Just to go off that, you look at all the young guys who are getting the experience this year, and I've talked about this because I love to see that Ulster are building for the future. You look at the likes of Eric O'Sullivan, Tom O'Toole, Adam McBurney, all those guys coming on uh, in this game. Angus Kernan, I thought, had actually a very good game at the weekend. I mm-hmm. thought he was quietly very good, um, especially in defence, which is somewhere where we haven't seen him sort of step up so far. But I thought he did really well. You look at how Ulster building for the future, and I think that's only going to bode well for them which is why I wouldn't be too downbeat after this mm-hmm. performance what these guys are learning from these kinds mm-hmm. of games is massive in terms of how to play in interpros how to play down to 14 men basically how to come into a into a team that is ravaged by injuries and step up to the mark and make a point where I would be concerned is the fact that Ulster were completely dominated physically and you look at the scrum how badly it it performed and you look at the fact that they're coming up against Leicester this week who are going to have another massive pack it's just a it's a staple of who Leicester are that's where Ulster have to step up again you, t- you hear them talk about and I talked about this last week they talk about how they have to play a different style of game because they don't have the forwards that other teams have well how do they stop other teams from steamrolling over the top of them they haven't quite worked that out yet. Yeah. I think that's the only thing that's going to come by learning what this team can do and where this team can go. And I think that's where you've got to get the young guys in. You've got to work out what this pack has as a unit. Mm-hmm. Well, one of those young guys got the man of the match in our poll, Angus Curtis, 42% of the vote. Uh, what about his performance? Off your phone, we're recording a podcast. I'm trying to here. check something for the podcast. <laughs> oh, well, that's all right. <laughs> Just on that poll. Um, not to take anything away from Angus Curtis's performance, but do we think he was maybe helped by the fact that we didn't include Nick Timoney or Stuart McCluskey in the options? I didn't say Sorry. That <laughs> <laughs> was a complete rogue call and who the four, four Excuse me, I always give the option for people to give their man of the match 
if they reply to the post as opposed to voting. So I, mean, I don't think it really gives us a united front if I'm on <laughs> underneath saying, what about Nick Timmons? <laughs> maybe I will. No, um, Curtis played really well. I thought um, Mark's point there, I thought was really interesting, the idea that they're moving in between 12 and 13, depending on whether Ulster do or don't have the ball. So yeah. we spoke to Stuart McCluskey about it earlier today, just... Um, Sort of that vote of confidence in McCluskey to defend 13, which is one of the trickiest positions on the field to defend. But it's going to be really important this week, that um, 10, 12, 13 axis for for Ulster, because you're going to be up against Ford, Eastman, possibly Tamuya. And Ford and Eastman especially have a really, really good understanding. And you can see Ford coming back to where he was almost when he was at Bath. Um before he's playing some much better rugby than he has been and depending on the weather because we're not sure whether this um, supposed storm is going to linger but um, if Leicester do choose to to play a bit of ball McCluskey mm. and Curtis and that relationship between the two of them is going to be really really important what's the deal with this storm could the match be off even is it that bad I haven't heard anything about I don't it think so. you mentioned yeah, earlier it's, 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 it's just going to be windy I think. I'm okay. waiting for a bar of best alert <laughs> <laughs> but yeah certainly I mean to Lange as well if he's playing at the weekend yeah. um, I mean I, looking at Leicester I'd be reasonably optimistic. I think they're in a state of flux. I mean, they obviously sacked their coach, Matt O'Connor, after one game this season. Jordan Murphy coming in and getting off to a great start with his controversial comments about the Will Spencer red card. So he's, he's inexperienced as a head coach in there. And Leicester this season, I've watched them a, a few times. Their defence has been absolutely shocking. They've conceded 40 points, I think, three times. Wooster stuffed them at home and ran through them. Now, they've tightened that up in the last couple of weeks, yeah. but they're not playing particularly well. I mean, they struggled to beat Zeal two weeks ago. They had a good win at Twickenham at the weekend in the, the Rob Horn um, fundraiser. It was a dreadful day, so it was actually quite difficult to gauge just where Leicester are in that match because the weather mm-hmm. was so horrendous. But I don't think there's too much to fear from that Leicester side. I'm, I'm more concerned... About, again, I go back to that injury list. If Ulster were coming locked and loaded with their, their main men, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be uh, scared of what Leicester are bringing to Kingspan. Mm-hmm. Who were the players Ulster said earlier? Should have had this loaded up. <laughs> back um, in June. Well, Will Addison, uh, Craig Gilroy, Jordy Murphy, and Marty Murray. So you can see the importance of that. You know, we talk, oh, you know, are, are they back in? They're, they're definitely they're back in, available? They're in training, so. Okay. Um, we're presuming those guys are going to come back in. Yeah. You talk about the injuries. Oh, Michael Lowry, you didn't mention your favourite. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see whether he plays. Can I, say, can I just say Michael Lowry again? Because I know Michael Lowry is often mentioned on this podcast. Every week. As I listen, every, every week as I listen to every I've episode. I've never heard of him before. So, Michael Lowry, just one more time. Yeah, just, <laughs> you fit in very well. <laughs> so, if you're, you know, you talk about the injuries... But you also look at the people that left at the end of last season through retirement and departures. The big thing for Ulster for me has been the fact that none of the guys they brought in have really played. Marty Murr hasn't played. Mm-hmm. Jordy Murphy's played once. Henry Spate has missed the last two. And Will Addison played the first two and has been out since. So everyone mm-hmm. that you brought in, with the exception of Billy Burns, um, hasn't really featured a heck of a lot. So you're talking about all those people that left at the end of last season. You've essentially got last season squad without them. Minus, yeah. So to get those boys back in is going to be huge. Um, you look at Leicester and it has been a really strange um, strange sort of season for them so far. Getting rid of Matt O'Connor after 
one game allegedly because they had um, I think they were weighing up their options over the summer at the end of last season and their opening game was enough to convince them <laughs> that, uh, that Matt O'Connor hadn't implemented the changes that apparently they had recommended which is Seemed like a strange situation. Yeah, I think the, the board had got involved, yeah. and there might have been a little bit of player mutiny in there yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Which we seem to see at Leicester now. <laughs> yeah, like it's um, not something that we would have readily associated with them in their um, heyday when they were perennially in the in the Premiership final. But <laughs> their, their defence is funny because they had the worst defence ever last year. And are well on their way to breaking that record. So it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a lot like um, all the situation we found Ulster in um, over the past two years. But the one thing, like the defence is terrible, their lineouts fairly shambolic. But the one thing that they can't do very, very well, actually better than anyone in the Premiership, is scrum. Yeah. You know, coming into this weekend, they'd won seven penalties on their own feed and hadn't lost a scrum, and they won another couple against Northampton. So. If you look at that in isolation, it would be an area that you wanted to look at. But if you then look at that in the context of what happened to Ulster on Friday night, and you've got a possibility of a real mess there, unless you can tighten up, uh, I'm sorry, unless Ulster can tighten up what went wrong against Connacht. You mm. might be able to help me here. I mean, Greg Bateman's a phenomenal scrummager. Ellis Gange, I think, is injured. He's an injured, yeah. Pilata now, does he come back in? He might come back in. Yeah. They're obviously looking at the amount of travel that he's had to do. I know. Um, but, but Tamua is back. I know he's yeah, back in Leicester and potentially going to be picked yeah. for the match. So. Um, yeah. And obviously uh, Dan Cole as yeah. well. So um, I'd say there were a few boys in Leicester looking at that Ulster scrummaging performance and uh, licking their lips. So it's going to be up to um, the, the Ulster front row, Roy Best, you know, so much experience in making adjustments on the fly week to week whether it be with Ulster or Ireland so it's not a bad man to have looking at these things Dan McFarland is somebody whose real coaching um, reputation is forged on the technical details of forward play um, so he's obviously going to be He'll have been stunned by what happened at the weekend, and it's going to be a huge focus to get that right this week. So one thing I'd, I'd look, we talked about before the podcast very briefly that I'd, I'd like to bring up is is the contribution of, of Billy Burns and, and the way he's playing for Ulster. I mean, I was lucky enough to commentate on Gloucester quite a lot in the last couple of seasons, mainly because I would focus in, in my previous job for Sky on the Challenge Cup, and Gloucester played a, a lot of good rugby in the Challenge Cup. Uh, they won it, in fact. And uh, Billy Burns seemed to play a much freer game in a Gloucester shirt. He was making a lot of breaks. He was always flat to the line, but he was making a lot of metres through gaps. When he's playing for Ulster, he seems to play a very restricted game and a very predictable kind of game. Now, I I appreciate that he's maybe trying to bed into a new club, so he's Mm. maybe keeping it quite safe and simple. But there's a lot of, not a lot of kicking, but there's a lot of very short balls shipped out to the man outside or inside. And we're not seeing those line breaks, which, which characterised Billy Burns for me, especially under the coaching of uh, Ackerman, because Ackerman seemed to free him up, whereas under Laurie Fisher he played in more of a kicking game. But I, what do you think, boys? Do we need to see more of that from Billy Burns? Also, are very easily telegraphed by defences whenever they don't have that variation to their game. We've talked about how they don't have the forward presence to you know get those pick-and-goes or the big forward carries that suck in defences. So you need someone offering that little bit of variance and that could be Burns because we, as he said we've we've seen with Gloucester that he likes to go for a line break he likes to 
add that little bit of a step to the at the game line. And you're right, we just haven't seen that yet from him. And I, I don't know if that's coaching, if that's something that he's trying to take out of his game just because of the way Ulster are playing. But you'd love to see him bring that little bit of difference to the back line, just make defences second guess. Because Ulster need that, otherwise their back plays just too easily easy to read. Well, it's funny, sorry, just, well, uh, Johnny Bell sent me, I emailed him at the start of the season and I, I asked him what I should look out for with Billy Burns and he said, where do you see him when he makes a break? He's got phenomenal pace. And you're still Have waiting. we seen it? I'm still waiting. <laughs> Six games in. Haven't seen it once. Well, you know, this, I suppose you can tell any story with stats, but one metre made on Friday night yeah. from, well, from Billy Burns. And whenever I... I'd seen him a couple of times for, for Gloucester, mainly in the Challenge Cup. And I remembered him being a very exciting sort of 10. And then the first couple of times I watched him, yeah, um, playing so flat to the gain line, I thought it was going to be a real recipe for success for Ulster. But the issue, I think, that Adam points out is the variance in the game plan. We talked before about how Ulster aren't kicking for territory from 10, essentially, at all. And when you add in the fact that they're not um, making line breaks either, then what you have is... You're not forcing the opposition defensive line into any depth, so that they've got a really, really flat defensive line rather than giving them something to think about and causing their defensive line to have a bit of depth. I understand that. Why am I using hand signals on a podcast? But it's helping me. Um, <laughs> it's just me and you here. Yeah. So when you have such a flat defensive line and the ball's going one out, two out, it's just bang, bang, bang. Boys are coming in, tackling their the man opposite them, and it's hard to make ground that way because you're not giving them really other things to think about. I, I do the live blog on match nights, and I don't know how many times I've written on the on the live blog. Ulster is just going side to side, and they're not getting mm. very far. And it, it is it is a repeated problem. They they just seem content to go back and forth and hope that a gap opens up somewhere. They're not doing anything to try and open up those gaps. They just seem content to keep going back and forth and hope there's a defensive mistake. Or you have the McCluskey going hard into contact, staying mm-hmm. on his feet and offloading with that big yeah. right hand. Or get it to Gilroy because he has been beating defenders mm-hmm. on that wide channel. Yeah. Good plug for the live blog of our Telegraph website, Match Night. Or watching Premier Sports. It's Sorry, that's fine, that's fine. Do both. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's probably not... Um, like I, I don't think Billy Burns has just turned up and decided that now is the time to curb his natural instincts. Mm. Yeah. Um, so presumably there is method to it, but I also don't think it's coincidence that the players that we see Ulster um, lean on the most heavily in terms of minutes are 9, 10 and 12 because they are trying to get that um, understanding between Cooney, Burns and McCluskey and it doesn't happen overnight and then Cooney was obviously away with Ireland so he comes into pre-season a bit late Billy Burns um, was signed late um, so you don't have that um, pre- much preparation time over the summer so I think they'll, they'll all improve the relationship between each other and the tough thing for them is that it's um, you're talking about Pinar Jackson um Olden Cave, whoever was playing 12 at the time, had years and years and years yeah. to build that understanding mm-hmm. that really hit a peak um, in 2014 with um, Neil Doak as the attack coach. And that's the standard that people are still holding Ulster's mm-hmm. attack play to. 
Yeah. I must say, I was immediately impressed by how quickly Will Addison looked like a top-class mm. player. I mean, those first yeah. two matches, there was no betting in for Will yeah. Addison. Straight away, I was thinking, is Joe Schmidt going to pick him for November? Like, he was that good. Yeah. I'm so disappointed when he got ill in South Africa. You were down there, Adam. Mm. And, and having not played since. since. And again, you know, he can get that combination of, of Spate and Gilroy and Addison as a back three, working as a pendulum in defence or attack or whatever way you, you want to look at it. Then it, it paints a different picture. Yeah. Just to throw in a few more listener questions at this stage, Adam Beresford's maybe um, sort of addressed. Um, will McFarland throw Marty Moore and Jordy Murphy straight in to add some bulk? If they're available, you can assume yes on that one. I would say Jordy will definitely go yeah. um, straight in, especially if, um, as we record this on Wednesday afternoon, especially if Matty Ray um, gets a ban, which you'd expect him to get something. Um, yeah. Marty Moore will be different because just hasn't had any rugby um, there was his hope certainly was that he was going to be cleared to play straight after the boys came back from South Africa and that obviously hasn't happened and that's probably um, going to create a bit of difficulty for him because you're looking at do you want to go straight in um, against Leicester Tigers against this great scrummaging outfit but then the other thing for Dan McFarland the way up against that is do you want to send Ross Kane or Tom O'Toole into that environment as well what would you do? I'd start Marty Moore, definitely. Um, especially with Ian Herbst now out, so that's another experienced option gone. Um, mm-hmm. I need to ask you guys, actually. K- Kaiser Sose, Marcel van der Merwe, does he actually exist? <laughs> never. I've never um, seen the guy. Um, and, wh- and where is he in terms of state of fitness? And is he available? Well... Yes, 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 and yes. Ah, good. <laughs> Kaiser does exist. This is the news. So, Schalke van der Merwe, we obviously haven't seen for the first team. We have not seen for the A team because of this um, loose arrangement that appears to be in place that um, imports cannot play in this Celtic Cup competition. So, it does appear for all intents and purposes that he has just vanished. Ulster <laughs> have helpfully been giving a comprehensive injury update each week which tells you now everybody who's unavailable for selection due to injury and Schalke again hasn't appeared on it we can just by going on social media we can understand that this is an emotive issue for people people are very concerned with Schalke's whereabouts so having looked into this only this morning he's not actually registered in the European squad um, that was sent into the EPCR um, last week, but we we didn't actually mention the fact that Rodney got a red, Rodney I you got a red card for the no, for the yeah. team as well. Yeah, so. these are the questions James Bradley had asked about Rodney I U A wasn't getting picked uh, or at least not in the bench, but he won't be this week anyway. Rodney, um, please not you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Very good. Um, yeah, loads of people asking about Van der Merwe. So uh, when Rodney's not there. Eric O'Sullivan, we should add, is going through the return to play. So basically, the situation that you have, and Kyle McCall side injured. So the situation that you have is Andy Warwick is fit. Uh, Eric O'Sullivan might be fit, but if he's not, Schalke van der Merwe, having not been registered in the European squad, is going to be, have to be registered as an emergency front row so that Ulster can mm-hmm. essentially feel the team with two loose hits. And will that be, will that be grounded okay? Yes, because yeah. um, otherwise the game would just have to be cancelled. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, sound of licks lipping in East Midlands. <laughs> well, 
I suppose the best thing. Or lips licking? Did I say licks slipping? Lips licking in East Midlands. Ulster's best hope is that um, Dan Cole will not be able to source any footage of Shelton Marvel because he hasn't seen it. Could be a master plan. <laughs> All of a sudden, Ulster is just going to break Shalk van der Merwe out of cold storage, mm, and he's yeah. going to become the next Ten Diamond Tower era. He's, he's <laughs> going to absolutely destroy a, a Lions, um, a Lions tight head, and Ulster scrum will be fixed. A freshly defrosted Marcel <laughs> van der Merwe. I like, I like, I like the vision. <laughs> So what do we reckon this weekend then? Are you, after taking all that into account, are you still not all that worried about Leicester? Uh, I think it depends a lot on that weather. I mean, it's it's going to suit. I think this Leicester. It's not the pack of old. It's not a Martin Johnson, Ben K kind of pack, but it's still big enough and ugly enough to worry Ulster, who are still, I think, a little bit lightweight on that, that front five. And you can tell by the way they're trying to adapt their game that that's possibly uh, the case. Um, I sincerely hope that we have a vision as we had before of Ben Young's in tears on the Kingspan bench when Leicester got destroyed here by 40 points or another occasion when Darren Cave memorably scored a hat-trick against the, the Leicester Tigers, another occasion when they Ulster won 33-0 here and the crowd were chanting, bring on Martin Johnson when he was already on the field, <laughs> which I, made me chuckle. But I, I think that was my first Ulster game. Well, there you go. But yeah, weather will dictate a lot, I think, in that game. And, and, and a really bad night might just suit this um, not quite gruesome, but uh, smelly enough Leicester pack. What do you reckon? One of the big things that got me whenever I was researching this game was how many of these players have actually been involved in an Ulster-Leicester game before? Because there's a lot made of the history between these mm. two teams. But looking at it... Only six of the Ulster team that played the last time these two met are likely to be involved this week. And at most, only six of the Leicester team will be involved. The rest have all left the club. So, for me, the history isn't quite there between these two teams anymore. You're too young for this, you see. <laughs> what do you mean I'm too young? <laughs> this is the issue that we have. Because, um, like, this is the ninth time that they've played each other in this competition mm-hmm. so the, the only teams that have played more are Stade Francais and uh, Toulouse 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 I know things I know things that's yeah. right so the knowledge Hannah yeah <laughs> read, it, read it earlier probably in one of Johnny's faces yeah. so yeah if you're looking at I suppose recent history you're going back to that the KV game with the, with the hat trick but there's an awful lot of individual battles that I'm looking forward to seeing but that Ulster need to win. You definitely give the edge to Leicester and all those individual battles up front. But who's going to make more of an impact? Is it going to be Stockdale or is it going to be Holmes? He's really a fantastic player. He's come in for for Leicester recently. You know, um, Eastmond, McCloskey. Could we see Curtis against Tuolagi? <laughs> you know, that could be uh, Cooney, Ben Youngs, Ford and Burns. There's so many so many fascinating battles to see in this game and I'm really looking forward to it but Ulster really have to get the edge in a good few of those and I think the people that really have to have a good game especially if it's going to be stinking is going to be Katsia and uh, Jordy Murphy and probably Mick Timoney and Henderson if Ulster's pack have the same performance they had last Friday I don't give them a hope mm. but if they can find improvement in the space of a week, and they can find some kind of parity up front, I give their backs the edge to get the win. But I think you're really talking about the front row when you talk about last week, because Henderson, I thought, had a really good game. 
could see a yellow card aside had a good game at the breakdown mm. we didn't see him getting out of the ball as much as we expected but I think he's playing a different sort of game this year Timoney I thought had a very good mm. game um, Alan O'Connor did what Alan O'Connor does made 14 or 15 tackles and took double digit line edge probably you know so you really are just looking at needing to get on top of that um, front row battle Roy Best is um, sorry Adam's allergic to me he's been yeah. sneezing all night uh. between Michael last week and Adam's this week um, Roy Best is going to have a better game just for having 55 minutes under his belt having not played since the monster game at the end of last season so <laughs> there's going to be no podcast next week we're yeah. all going to be struck down this um, happens to me it just happens to me every so often <laughs> so what you're really talking about in seeking improvement from your pack um, or needing to seek improvement is your props at the set piece so very very quickly prediction who's winning <laughs> put yourself Long on the line here radio silence nothing worse than silence <laughs> I think it's a really really tough game it's a really call. tight game mm. it's incredibly tight game a fortnight ago um before the Enterprise and before Leicester had won two in a row, um, <laughs> yeah. I would have said Ulster all day long. But it is just going to be, mm. you need those big players that we mentioned, that big games, um, and get the better of those individual battles because um, Leicester is showing signs of life and Ulster's confidence is going to be brittle. But, look, Ulster don't lose an awful lot of games here to English teams. Um, Saracens was the last one. Half five on a Saturday isn't quite half seven on a Friday, but it's going to be a pretty vocal crowd. It should be mm-hmm. a good atmosphere. Um, should be an unwelcoming atmosphere in the best uh, and nicest possible way. And I think I'm just, just, just bagging Ulster to get the win. Yeah, well, Ulster have enough international top class verging on world class forwards out there I mean if you, Rory Best at his best Ian Henderson at his best Marcel Coutsy at his best Jordy Murphy Grand Slam winner at his best John Dysel if he decides to play well and sometimes I think with Dysel it is his decision and if he's in that back row the time he played with um, Coutsy before he got injured last season against the Shaders I thought this combination could be fabulous for Ulster mm-hmm. so the, the potential I think is there to to give Leicester all sorts of problems, but all those key players have to play at 80, 90, close to 100%. I'm going to be the sole Leicester advocate. <laughs> I, I, I think I'll start relying too much on those big players, and whenever you've got Murphy coming back from injury, um, you've got Best playing after only playing 55 minutes last week. I think Ulster relying too much on their big name players as opposed to Leicester. Mm-hmm. No, no, I think Ulster going to do it. Can't see them losing three in a row, especially those guys coming back. Jeepers, imagine if they do, the people will be going on about this zebra effect from last year happening it's, all over it's again. It's funny, like because they lose one and everyone's like, right, it's grand, and then they lose two, mm-hmm. and even on the way, like social media and stuff, you can see people are getting touchy. There's, there's, there's a little bit more edge about things, yeah. and then. Yeah, if they lose three in a row, because oh, if they lose their first game at home in Europe, and we're saying earlier, it's a funny situation to be in because this is the on paper this is the one that you're most likely to win. So if you lose this game and then go away to Racing now, I know Racing have lost twice at home already in the top fourteen this year, but in their big weird stadium. Yeah, um, you're you're snickered if you lose this weekend. Basically, have you been to that stadium with the big? 
No, Screen. I've been to the old stadium, which was horrendous. It was a rust bucket. But this <laughs> one, this one is fabulous. Yeah, yeah. If you lose this one, then Racing with Simon Zebo and Toe playing well. He's been scoring a lot of tries. Finn Russell at out, out half. But they have injuries too. They're missing Teddy Thomas mm. and Maxi Machino. There's two other key men, Bryce Doolan's out as well, and somebody else who skips my mind at the moment. But uh, they've got him off, I think. One him off, thanks. Yeah, it might be him off, but uh, they've got a they've got a big pack. I mean, they've got a, a pack of considerable depth. I mean, last week Dominic Ryan, who's been playing pretty well for them, was on the bench. You know, they Dominic Bird, the All Black in the second row. So, yeah, if you lose to Leicester at home and then you have to go to Paris to mm -hmm. play, I remember a Racing team who've been hurt twice in finals, and I think will be very determined to front up in this year's Champions Cup. It could be, uh, well, you could have revolting peasants mm. in a few weeks' time. <laughs> Win or meltdown this weekend, then. Uh, Mark, we'll talk a little bit about yourself now. Tell us a little bit about how you got into commentating. I uh, did media studies at Coleraine, University of Ulster, up there, and I always wanted to be in sports broadcasting, and the BBC gave me a, a voice test when I was 21, and uh, a month's trial, and I've been doing it ever since. The trial must have went all right then. Reasonably, yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> no other contenders, I think, at that stage. <laughs> we, yeah, uh, we give some amount of publicity to the media up in Coleraine, look. We should say I know, we do. Absolutely. <laughs> they should be our sponsors. The Ulster <laughs> Rugby Roundup Scholarship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how did that even come about? Uh, it's all about contacts in this business, as you, as you boys know. Um, my my father was a lawyer, and one of his clients was a lady called Joy Williams, who was the head of BBC Sport at the time, okay. and he used his influence to get me a, a sign test. And uh, Joy sent me to CIYMS versus Ballymena, and I was told to write a report on the match, come back into the studio and record a 40-second radio report. Okay. And on the back of that, uh, I got a gig. And then you, did, you worked for BBC for... Uh, a few years. I heard one story that you reported on and played in the same game. Yeah, <laughs> I did. Which sounds a great I story. Did. Well, again, amazingly, that was again, it was CI against Ballymena, and I was sent up to report on the game. It was a senior league game, and those days CI and Ballymena were top sides, not not so much this day, these days, especially with CI. And I was there with my little notepad. I was only 24, 25 years of age. I was to do the radio report and then go into the BBC studios and present Scoreboard, which is now Final Score. Okay. So I was doing radio and then television. And I turned up at the game. In those days, only 15 players togged out. There were no replacements and they'd know where. The CI winger had gone down with the flu or something similar. And the captain talked me into playing. So I played in the match. I did a half-time report in my CI kit. I played the second half very poorly, terrified of getting a facial wound, knowing I was on television later that evening. Did my match report at the end of the game, slightly out of breath, raced back to the studios, washed my face, put on my shirt, tie and jacket, and I presented scoreboard in my shorts and <laughs> socks and muddy knees. Did you give yourself a good mention in the match report, though? And, and I think, <laughs> well, what do you think? <laughs> mention myself and lose my job. <laughs> Funny, I covered loads and loads of CI games and nobody ever asked me if I wanted to play. <laughs> <laughs> they were very short, though. There. there were no options. Just take one look at you, gentlemen, and you. Yeah, we're, like, no, we're better with 14. No. <laughs> I asked them where you play and I tried to claim to be a back and they were just looking you up. Like, <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Definitely in the park. <coughs> so you obviously played rugby. Tell us about your own then playing sport background. Uh, well, yeah, rugby was a passion. My father... 
played for Ulster and um, played in the same Ulster side as Jack Kyle. So he's got great memories and he, he loves telling me about them. He coached CI and I followed him into that club. I had to stop playing at the age of 26 because my boss said, you either work on a Saturday or play rugby. So mm. I had to take the career option and probably a very good choice because I was a very <laughs> limited rugby player. Uh, played in the back row originally, uh, played a match uh, the, against Queens who had Nigel Carr and Philip Matthews in the back back row. It was on that day that I realised that I had virtually no talent for the position. <laughs> I then moved into inside centre and I was a crash ball who had no crash. Um, so CI lost nothing when I retired at 26. <laughs> was it like, it must have been tough enough at the time, like, because obviously... Devastating. It was devastating to have to give up rugby at that age. I, 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 to that man, I was in tears. I remember having a long discussion with my father, and I, I was actually thinking of giving up my broadcasting career because I so desperately wanted to play rugby. Yeah. So yeah, it was a hard call, but he basically made the decision for me and said, you know, you're you're going to be in broadcasting for hopefully 30, 40 years, and your rugby career could finish in a month's time with an injury, and then you've blown your your broadcasting yeah. aspect of things. So, yeah. you, you're, you're being very modest. You did play higher than, than club level uh, with Ulster, didn't you? Well, this is, a, this is a little bit of a myth. The, the Ulster under-20s, and I've heard this a couple of times, I was selected to play for the Ulster under-20s when I was at university. And I was so excited, you wouldn't believe. I was <laughs> jigging all over the place, pumped with adrenaline. Getting all set to come down to then Ravenhill for the first training session. The game was against Leinster the following weekend. And I got a call from the Ulster branch at Ravenhill to say that they'd made an error and that I was two weeks too old to play for the under-20s. So I was picked but never played. And it was the first time I cried about a game of rugby. The second time was about five years later when I had to retire. Oh, that's gone. Isn't it? Isn't it devastating? <laughs> it really is. <laughs> that means that one of my hints on Twitter might have been slightly misleading. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, that's why I thought it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder who else was coming on the podcast. <laughs> <coughs> uh, and you have, uh, like, your background's obviously not just in, in rugby either. You did plenty of football reporting and things. Yeah, I've commentated a lot in football over the years, Northern Ireland for Sky and, and elsewhere. I've been to a couple of World Cups. Um, in 82, 94 USA with the Republic. was in the stadium when um, the Republic beat beat Italy um, 1-0, which was a fantastic nice. fantastic occasion. And a lot of golf. I commentated for many seasons on the European tour. So that was great to you do. Yeah, yeah, to do golf. And this was for the, wor- uh, the World Feed. So that was for mm-hmm. uh, Mark McCormick, IMG. So it was great to do golf in the summer and then to do uh, rugby and, and football pretty much in, in the great. winters. Oh, yeah, that was fantastic times, yeah. Um, you must have played, you mentioned there the, the Republic of Ireland at game. you must have a few standout career highlights there uh, yeah all, all, most of my standout career highlights are, are rugby highlights I've been lucky is, enough r- to, is rugby your yeah, your, your, yeah well, because or I, do you feel you have to say that now? no I don't because <laughs> I well because of my father's history in the game and having played for Ulster and my dream is always to play for Ulster and getting so close to playing for the under 20s mm-hmm. and it was the game I was most passionate about. Yeah, it, ha- it has to be rugby, and I've covered four World Cups, which was a great, a great honour. Um, you talk about funny standout, standout moments for me are usually embarrassing moments. And go for it. With the, time for this. Well, the most embarrassing, <laughs> the most embarrassing moment, the, the, the thing that ever happened to me was at the World Cup in two thousand and three, Ireland against Australia. 
and David Humphreys had a drop at goal to beat Australia in the last minute. I was commentating with David Soule, the former Scotland Grand Slam captain. And if you remember, David Humphreys, when he dropped a goal, it usually started straight and then curved from right to left. That's the way he struck the ball. It always yeah. drew in. And I talked to Humph after the game. He struck it too well and it held its line. And I was commentating and I was giving it the big build because I was sure it was going to draw back, yeah. go over the bar and Ireland were going to beat Australia at the World Cup, Nirvana. And it stayed straight in the midst. So I was absolutely devastated and kept commentating as you have to do. But my heart had sunk. Got to the final whistle and I wrapped up very professionally, stood up out of my seat, turned to my right and kicked the wall of the commentary box as hard as I could <laughs> possibly kick it and let out a scream of anger. But I didn't know that the commentary box wall was made of plasterboard. <laughs> So my foot went clean through the commentary box wall into the next commentary box, which was occupied by Australians, who all jumped two or three <laughs> foot in the air and uttered profanities on air. But, oh, no. but the problem was I couldn't get my leg out. So I was stuck in the wall, guldering, and David Soul had to get me under the armpits and pull me back out of the wall. Mortified. Disaster. Do you find it hard whenever you're on, like you mentioned, your heart sinking and things when you're commentating in Ireland? Is it hard then to sort of keep professional in those sort of moments? Yes, it is. And oh God, I have to go back to it. I, Sky didn't like putting me in Ulster matches for mm. obvious reasons. And I, I, would, I would try and persuade them that I could be balanced and professional and, and uh, show equanimity at all times when commentating in Ulster games. So they eventually gave in. And they allowed me to commentate on Ulster versus Saracens in the Heineken Cup quarterfinal. And I told them I would show complete and utter balance until Jared Payne <laughs> got sent off. And I, I, lo I didn't lose it because I stayed professional in my commentary. Huh. But inside, inside, I was boiling and I, be I became a rabid Ulsterman in every <laughs> molecule of my body while outwardly trying to commentate with balance on the game. And like everybody else in the stadium, when Chris Ashton went into the corner and did the ash splash, I wanted to run onto the pitch and get him by the throat. But I had to continue <laughs> to commentate and give him great credit for his marvellous score <laughs> and his celebration. So yeah, it's, it is very difficult if you're commentating on Ireland, Ulster and teams you've got a passionate involvement with to, to, to maintain um, that, that kind of that kind of balance and I find it now with with premier sports you know sometimes you have to almost go the other way and I was trying to do that in especially in Irish Derby whenever Stephen Ferris myself Andrew Trimble are making comment and complimenting Ulster I would try to balance it by making sure I give Connacht due credit for what yeah. they're doing and for their shape and their structure Andy Friend how well the back row's playing and that they they fully deserve this victory mm -hmm. but but I've almost got to to remember to do it because you do drift, to, it's subconscious. Yeah. It's the team that you follow for your whole life mm -hmm. and have wanted to play for. So subconsciously you can't do a huge amount about that, but you've got to, you've got to allow your professionalism to override that. Mm. Yeah, that's the way I feel when I'm a little too. One thing I quite like to know is, do you still get nervous? Yes, I was pacing up and down the pitch on, on Friday night and I go through the same routine every time. I go, come on, Mark, you've commentated on two World Cup finals, four Heineken Cup finals, you've done Irish tours, you've done this, that and the other. Why are you nervous? Why are you nervous? Come on, come on, come on. But it never changes. And I, I remember talking many, many years ago to a great hero of mine, Bill McLaren, 
And he said, the day you don't get nervous is the time to give it up because you've, yeah. you've got to be nervous or you do not perform at your best. Yeah. You're not tuned into what's happening on the pitch. And, and then you, you lose concentration and you become lax and you start mm-hmm. to make mistakes. I was going to ask you about, um, about heroes, just when you mentioned Bill McLaren there. I mean, Bill was notorious for his preparation mm. and his notebooks filled with um, every detail on uh, every international player that he ever came mm. across. In terms of preparing for games, obviously you have to have your, you know, your stats down and things like that, but one thing I've always been curious about is like lines in your head of things mm. that you're going to mm-hmm. deploy, I suppose, like um, Nick Williams going through the defence like a like a hammer through Blamange has always been... Uh, Did I say that? <laughs> always been one of my favourites. Yeah. Um, is that the kind of thing that you have in your head before and you think this will make a good line or is it completely off the cuff or how do you approach it? Well, that goes back to Bill McLaren. I did a Scotland Italy game many years ago, one of my very first internationals. I was only 22, 23, maybe 24. Bill McLaren was there watching them train, watching the Italians train. And I walked up to him. I was terrified to even speak to the great man because he was such a legend. And uh, I got talking to him. He offered me a sweetie, a hoik ball, as he always offered people. And I asked him one question. I just said, look, Bill, I'm a young rugby commentator. Can you give me one line of advice? And he said, he said yes, Mark, I will certainly, son. Your greatest challenge, he said, your greatest challenge is to think of different ways to say the same thing. Because rugby is a repetitive game, it's a phase game, and Bill McCann was like that. So yeah, I, I definitely will have lines and thoughts that I, I will sometimes write them down, I keep them in a notebook. But the the difficult thing is, is it's, it's like picking the right line from the library in your head to suit the moment. I don't have a line written down, you know, beside Nick Williams, like a hammer going through Blumange, but I may have it in a general synopsis of lines and, and it's sort of, they're all um, wriggling about inside my head. And that, that's the hard bit is is sort of selecting it like a, like a vinyl record from a jukebox <laughs> at the right time to fit the right moment. And it's funny you say that, cause like I, that's, that's my big thing about the match reports. And I never thought about it in terms of commentary, but it is like, you're trying to find different ways to describe what is essentially the same thing that you've already um, already described, and like, um, even doing the book as well, it was like, just how many times you find yourself using the same phrases over and over again. But it must be even worse on commentary because you have to have, obviously, the sheer volume of the amount of words that you're using is so much, so much more. Yeah. And also the sheer volume of games we do now. Like, yeah. like Sky was doing 37, 40 games a season. Bill McLaren in his era was never doing more than six or seven. So you're trying to be, you're trying to be fresh every week, and that yeah. that's, that is a real challenge. Yeah, I'm sure you've got to meet a lot of great sportsmen and women. Who would you sort of pick out as your best? interview or somebody you've got to meet uh, okay well there's two uh, Pele I was lucky enough oh, to interview good. Pele Dear bless yeah, yeah I know I know well 86 <laughs> World Cup uh, in Mexico we were flying out and uh, we went through Dallas airport and he was sitting there reading a newspaper with his sunglasses on on his own and I had a, a, a what was called a euro in those days a tape recorder I was working for Radio Ulster at that time and I just walked past him and saw him and I thought that's Pele and I couldn't not as a you know, radio journalist go over and because Brazil were in our pool Brazil Northern yeah, Ireland so 
I went up to him and said, hello, the Pele, yeah. Bit of park ride about Oh, there was a big, absolutely. But he was so nice and I sat down and he gave me this phenomenal interview and he said, if only George Best had been born in Copacabana Beach, what a what a front line Brazil would have had. And he just gave me these, these you know, it was just nuggets. It was fantastic. My, my hand was shaking through the whole interview. I have I had got Pele with this incredible exclusive. Um, but even better, when we then boarded the flight between Dallas and Guadalajara, Pele was in business class. We all boarded the front of the plane. And I had um, behind me a Des Lynham, John Motson, as we all board, BBC guys, all boarding the plane. And as I walked past, there was Pele sitting in business class. And he just pulled his sunglasses down to the edge of his nose and he went, Mark! <laughs> <laughs> and I went, Pele! <laughs> We're all friends, you know! <laughs> That's amazing. I love the way Pele's idea of a disguise was just sunglasses. Yeah. And <laughs> thinking no one would recognise one of the most famous footballers. And it was ever. the Belfast Telegraph. Oh, there we go. Yeah. So, so what's your other one? You say you too. Oh, Andre Agassi. I just thought he was fantastic. Again, I was lucky enough with Eurosport to cover several Australian Opens. And yeah. uh, I just a legend. And the way he was able to communicate with the media was just... Out of this world, a very, very, very intelligent guy, and he knew what you wanted as a journalist. And he won won an Australian Open. He beat Sampras in the semi-finals, and uh, I was doing it for for TV for Eurosport. And I said, Andre, look, a bit embarrassing. We're looking for a little a little setup line for the for the final. Could you could you do a piece straight to camera? And I thought, Jesus, just say no and tell me to get stuffed. He said, Yeah, yeah, sure, run the camera. So he looked straight down the barrel of the camera, and he said, In the final, I'm going to put on my hard hat. I'm going to pack my lunchbox and I'm going to go to work. And Good I said, man. will that do you? I went, will that do me? Will that do me? No, he was, he was just such a gentleman. Yeah. I, I mean, he was taking photographs of our crew and you know, move closer together and I'll just get you all in. And Just such a humble, classy and a phenomenal athlete with a, a, an incredibly intellectual sporting brain. Great. That's, that, yeah, they're they're hard to beat. Yeah, those two, that's really. uh, yeah, tough to top that. <laughs> um, where's your favorite um, favorite place that you've co- apart from our lovely surrounds here? Obviously, where's your favorite place that you've covered a, a game or an event? I suppose. Uh, favorite stadium to commentate in is is the Suncorp in Brisbane, and my second favorite is King's Home in Gloucester, and uh, because they are true amphitheaters, and. There's nothing better than Gloucester, King's home and the shed when it's full, when it's a big derby game. The atmosphere it creates there is just out of this world. But the commentary positions are also very, very good, which is important to me. You're right on top of the play, so you feel as if you're almost toppling in on top of the match. So it, it helps you generate uh, the right kind of resonance in your voice as well. And it helps you describe and, and paint the pictures in front of you much better too. There's nothing worse than being in a you know, way back in the stadium, a long way from play, and there's yeah. too many stadiums like that. So, yeah, definitely the Sun Court and King's Home would be the favourite. Never yeah. been to King's Home. It's uh, very high up on the list of ones that I want to go to, mm. but uh, no, I've never been. We should ask about Premier Sport. Oh, yeah, um, I've forgotten about that. How, <laughs> <laughs> how, uh, how are you finding it? How is it going? I'm sure you're still buzzing to be back doing Ulster games so regularly. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal to be to be able to do all of Ulster's home games because that's my main gig. Um, 
What's amazed me is how quickly they've managed to put it all together because this is, it's unique in a sense in that they are showing all 152 games live and yeah. uh, Premier Sports only had five weeks to put this together and it's, it's a, it's a massive volume of work and preparation and, and they've just about managed to carry it off and they've got some good people in place and there still are teething problems with little sound issues and glitches and tweaks here and there that need to be done but when you think about the the massive amount of rugby they are now broadcasting the entire Pro 14 plus two hours of highlights a week and a live magazine show I think it's it, it is a breakthrough for the Pro 14 they need now obviously to back it up by selling subscriptions and building an audience because I think the Pro 14 themselves have taken a huge risk by moving away from from Sky Sports and BBC and all the other um, free-to-air platforms but in terms of uh, volume, content, and the excitement of the project, it's uh, it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah. One question I wanted to ask, which is maybe more career advice than anything else, as journalists, we're all used to or getting used to getting plenty of flack, especially on social media. We've got plenty, even for the podcast. And any time I write a story online or on the radio or whatever, you always seem to get a little bit of criticism. Have you found that, and how do you deal with it? Because I'm a very sensitive soul. And when people say things that aren't nice about the podcast, a little part of me dies. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say anything bad ever again. (laughs) I would love to say that I am bulletproof, but I'm pretty sensitive too. And uh, oh, my girlfriend Petra, God love her, she's she's always saying to me, just ignore them, just ignore them. They're trolls, they're trolls and all this stuff. Sometimes I engage. If I'm in the mood, I'll lie back on the sofa with my Twitter feed and I'll... I'll have fun with it, and usually you, you find um, the, the the courage of the keyboard warrior dissipates with a little bit of intellectual engagement, and then they <laughs> they eventually give up. Uh, on other occasions, if it's if it's appalling abuse, I I just ignore it and maybe block somebody or, or just move away from it. But no, it it is it's nasty, but it, it is it is cowardice. You know, it's the bottom line that the people if they've got a complaint, they should seek you out front up and say it to your face. It's very easy to be critical of anybody or anything from behind a computer screen. My problem with intellectual engagement is I can't think of anything. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think it's, uh, I mean, is that a universal thing? Um, Just, I suppose, from worldwide commentators, do you think would suffer, suffer the same things? Or is it a sort of almost uniquely ours thing yeah I'm not sure whether you should buy into the like nation of begrudgers tag that we've got or Mm. but there seems to be from my point of view there's thankfully not really um, with me as Gareth says we get a a bit of stick about the podcast but not I think Ulster fans by and large are um, mostly very decent about it but um, the way people view Irish even Irish rugby media (laughs) In Ireland, I think, can be very, very negative. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it would just be, do you think if you were doing commentary um, elsewhere, that you would get the same? Well, there, there, was a, there was a time with Sky that, uh, that a, a group of Munster supporters tried to get me sacked, and uh, they, they, they formed a petition. Uh, and no matter what I said about Munster, they would only hear the negative comments. So I could talk gloriously about a magnificent monster performance and then I would uh, criticise Ronald for one poor kick into the corner which, which lands in Rose Ed instead of hitting the turf before the white line and they would only hear that yeah. and then they would they would see that as an Ulsterman criticising monster and, and 
I definitely find that a battle being an Ulsterman commentating on Leinster and Munster. Not funny enough, not so much Comet, but certainly Munster would have been uh, the most critical of my, of my commentaries because they, I don't think they particularly enjoyed an Ulsterman commentating on on their team. That's just that's just my viewpoint. I think that's changed. I think that's softened a lot over the years. But I certainly had my my issues, uh, which had to be addressed. Um, so yeah, they, they can be, they can, well, as you know, it's such a parochial country and it's, it's quite an insular country and it's four provinces and we're very proud of each individual province and, uh, and we are inclined to be uh, a, a country that can become quite paranoid and harbour grudges, <laughs> as, our, as our history suggests. <laughs> and I think it, it, it drips through into the sport. Yeah. That's just being brutally honest. Mm. Just I'm, I can't remember what game it was, but it was the one that the monster fans always give off about where Reggie Corrigan gave. Um, oh, Marius Schubert. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's, can I just tell that story very yeah. quickly? I was sitting in a bar in Toulouse when that match was on. Leinster were playing Toulouse the next day, and I was commentating on the match. And Munster were playing Clermont. And if you, you remember, of course, uh, Munster beat Clermont by 42 points to 7 or something like that. And Reggie Corrigan, the Leinster prop forward, gives Marius Joubert the Man of the Match award, unbelievably. And this Leinster, as soon as the Man of the Match award went up on the screen, all the Leinster fans cheered loudly. And one Leinster fan shouted very loudly, That's it, Reggie! Give the buggers nothing! <laughs> so, but again, that's an example of the parochialism. That's that's the only time the Leinster uh, fans cheered in that game was when Reggie gave the man of the match to a Claremont player. Brilliant. Who said it to provincial rivalry instead? <laughs> exactly. Well, Reggie was, uh, he was on again, was it the... I saw a tweet from him at the weekend during Leinster Munster where he... Uh, Reference the the intensity word from uh, from the last time they had played. So he's still uh, still winding up monster fans, obviously. Yeah. I think he's very good, Reggie. I've heard him commentating on Premier a couple of times, and I think he's a top analyst. Yeah, he did. Uh, he did a few of the Ulster away European mm. games for uh, for BBC Radio as well. And he's, he is, he's good. Say, very good. Good, Reg. That us. No further questions, Your Honour. Free. No, free free to go. We'll, we'll move on very quickly then to our roundup of the the club action. Cheapers, if I can survive long enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the All Ireland League, everyone's back now. So we'll start in Division One B. They may have split the two results in the Senior Cup and the Ulster Premiership, but Malone have the latest bragging rights over Ballymena after they returned to 1B with a bang by winning 27-0 at Eaton Park. However, it was a tough week for the rest of the Ulster clubs as Balmahinch lost 37-27 away at Dropdowns St Mary's College. Banbridge were handed a 42-28 defeat on the road to Old Belvedere and City of Armagh's first taste of 1B rugby saw them beaten 22-17 at the Palace Grounds by Old Wesley. In Division 2A, it was a high-scoring affair at Woodley Park and it was a good day for Queen's as they picked up a massive 43-41 away win at Highfield. In Division 2B, Belfast Harlequins' good start to the season came down with a bit of a thud as they were defeated 15-12 at Derrimore Park by Sunday's well. Rainey were also beaten at home as they lost 26-12 to Wanderers at Hattrick Park to keep them pointless to start the season. And Dungannon's trip to Sligo also ended in defeat as they lost 33-25. In Division 2C, there were two thumping wins at home for Bangor and Oma Ackies. Bangor maintaining their perfect start to the season by dispatching Tolan 39-10, while the 
Aki's brush aside, Malahide 32-17. However, City of Derry's promising start ended. Uh, they were defeated 45-15 away to Bruff. And in the All-Ireland Women's League, Cook battled hard against league leaders Railway Union, but unfortunately came up short in a 32-12 loss at St. Michael's College. So looking ahead to this week's action... In Division 1B, the Ulster Derbies keep coming, with Ballinahinch welcoming City of Armagh to Ballymacon Park. Banbridge return home to take on Buccaneers. Malone are also at home as they take on St Mary's, and Ballymena go on the road to face Nace. In Division 2A, Queen's welcome Galwegians to the dub. In Division 2B, we have our first Ulster Derby of the 2B season, as Dungannon host Belfast Harlequins at Stevenson Park, while Rainey go to Greystone, still searching for their first point of the season. And in Division 2C, City of Derry hosts Seapoint, Bangor are away to Middleton, and Oma travel to Tomond. And in the All-Ireland Women's League, Cook are away again this week. They face 7th place St Mary's on Saturday at 5pm. You remembered the women this week? I did, Good. yes. Good. <laughs> uh, and then the only other news Ulster, obviously beat Ospreys 39-19 last week, and they play Connacht Eagles away this Sunday. And we're way over time, so that is pretty much us for this week. But Mark, may I say it was an absolute pleasure to have you in. Thank Thoroughly you enjoyed much. it. Thank, Thank you, you guys really for asking me. That. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, it was good, and I appreciate your career advice. I'm going to try and not take <laughs> things too personally from now on. So, from Mark Robson. You should just say thank you now. Oh. <laughs> thank you now. You've never listened to the end of a podcast before, have you, Mark? You've no. never listened through to the end. My word from Adam Kendrick. Cheers, guys. And Jonathan Bradley. Thank you very much. And me, Gareth Thanks for listening.